on Fridays, Carl emails this out, these songs, and I don't know if you read uh, some of the words on here when you were singing and wondered, what does that mean? What's that talking about? And it might be good for you on Friday to get that bulletin, download it, look at those words, and consider that. Maybe even study it out and try to find some things that it's talking about in here. Maybe you don't understand, but those four songs were just packed with theology, weren't they? And theology is the study of God, and that's the most delightful thing we could do in the world is to study God, to learn more about him. Well, this morning we're going to study about God's view of beauty. We're going to step into the cosmetology uh, workshop, parlor, if you want to say, and God, we're going to learn what God views as beautiful. What would you consider the most beautiful thing in the world? Guys, you should be like nudging your wife here on this one. When we think about beauty, what is beauty? What do you consider beautiful? The word beauty simply means that you are seeing qualities in something that pleases your sight. That, you know, the, the old saying goes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the idea is that you look at something, you see certain qualities about it, and you think that pleases you, you that pleases your heart. You think that's beautiful. So we see a sunset, and we look at it, and we say, wow, look at that. That's beautiful. We maybe see a, a guy dressed in a, a black tux and a girl in an evening gown, and they're walking, holding hand, hand in hand in the, under the uh, moonlit sky, and we say, that's beautiful. Maybe if you uh, fix up a 1960s Jaguar. Any guys in here who are antique car guys, like that kind of stuff? Okay, so would you consider... Uh, a, a remodeled 1960s Jaguar to be beautiful or something like that? How about, if you like music, how about Mozart's 1755 violin con concerto number three? I don't even know what that is, but, but you think about that. Wouldn't it be amazing to go to a grand music hall and hear something like that? So if you consider music beautiful, you probably would consider that beautiful. And maybe it's a painting, maybe it's an intricate design. It's kind of difficult to define what beauty is, isn't it? There is, a, there is a personal value system that you have. Maybe it's because of your culture, your upbringing, whatever, that does, uh, that does help you evaluate what you consider to be beautiful or not. I did read a study by some scientists that studied what people considered beautiful, what they considered to be beauty. They said the study concluded that our minds gravitate towards things that are more symmetrical and organized, to have some kind of design with shapes or colors. And so when things are more organized like that, whether it be with sound or sight, we consider those things typically to be more beautiful things. So what does God view as beautiful? Let me come over here and get one of these. I'm going to steal this from you, Josh, okay? That way I don't have to... Keep wondering where that, what the next page says there. Do you know the Bible describes a woman as beautiful? Do you know God looks at a woman and sees her beauty? But not in the way you might think of, not the external. In our text here this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 3, so if you're not there already, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter teaches that God considers the inner person of a woman who is Christ-like to be beautiful. 
God does not view people as we view people. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man or mankind, people look on the outward appearance, but God looks at what? He looks at the heart. So what does God consider beautiful? It's the heart of a person who has imperishable, Christ-like qualities. And so if you have a handout, you can see the title of our message. Our sermon today is dealing with this. Just think about that. Think about, think about all that God has made. I mean, Josh earlier described a little bit of that, right? Think about the complexity of even the smallest, you know, Adam, just the beauty of that. And then think about the grandeur of this universe and the beauty of that. I mean, everything that we see that's natural, right? God has created, and it's beautiful. There's a beauty to it. But what does God, when he gazes on his creation, what does he see as beautiful? This should actually be somewhat breathtaking. It should, should cause us to go, wow, this is, this is incredible. Look at verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 3. The Bible says that he gazes upon the heart of a person who's Christ-like and says that's beautiful in his eyes. Verse 4 says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Those are Christ-like qualities, which in God's sight is very precious. That's the word precious is valuable. It's very valuable in God's sight. He looks at the heart of a person. He says, that is beautiful. If you look at verse 4, the word adorning there, and also we see that word in verse 3. The word adorning literally is the word cosmos or world or order. Most of the times it's translated as the world or order. And here it's translated as adorning. And the idea is that you're taking something that's in disorder and you're putting it, putting it into order. In fact, if you think about the word cosme, um, cosmetics or cosmetology, cosmetics is the Latinized form of the Greek, this Greek word right here, putting in order, cosmos. So with cosmetics, a woman takes something that's out of order and she puts it into order, right? She uses makeup, foundation, all that kind of stuff. The entire store is filled with tools for this kind of stuff. And so you're taking things from out of order, you bring them into order. So literally, that's what this word means. It means to put into order to make it beautiful. So what does God want a woman, but really all of us, to, to do, to put into order, to adorn, if you want to say it that way? It's our hearts, our inner person. And notice in verse 4, he says it's the imperishable, beautiful heart that's precious in God's sight. So God's view of true beauty is a heart of a person that exhibits these Christ-like qualities. So what we're looking at in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, is a text that's addressed directly to wives, particularly to wives who have an unbelieving um, husbands. But I think we can apply it not just to wives, but to ladies in general, and then to all of us, because we're talking about Christ-like qualities. So we're in our series studying how to glorify God with your life while you suffer, Today we're studying how to glorify God by adorning yourself with the imperishable beauty of Christ-likeness. And so we're going to look at four beauty tips here today. So we're in God's cosmetology school here. Sit in the chair, and we're going to make you up here. So, so look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll read the text of Scripture, then I'll pray, pray, and we'll get into these four points here. 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verse 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's pray. Father, we believe this is your word, and it speaks to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray you help all of us, men, women, wives, husbands, singles, youth, help us to take your word and to seek to understand how we can use that to, to, um, to trust you, to become more like your son, Jesus Christ, really to put on these, these beautiful characteristics of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, Peter teaches wives to adorn their marriages with the beauty of submission. And so we see the first point here is adorn your marriage, your marital role, with the beauty of submission. Now, he says in verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, when you read that verse, I see some smiles out there already, okay? When you read that verse, what comes to your mind? For some in the world, if they read a verse like this, they would label this verse as misogynist. I had to look that word up to know what it means, by the way. Misogynist, sexist, patriarchal, and they use that in a bad negative sense. If you don't believe the scriptures are the words of God, then probably you would come to that conclusion. You would reject this teaching, or you'd try to maybe explain it away. And actually, there's a lot of modern Bible teachers and scholars in seminaries who actually teach that this is just cultural. So they explain it away. And they usually say something to the fact that, you know, this is just the culture. I'm trying to use my British accent because usually those are the ones that are the smartest, right? They have some kind of British accent. And this is, this is cultural. And this is just something that, you know, if you understand the culture, you can understand it's not for us today. So we're going to look at the scripture and actually say, what does the word of God teach us? Not just what some man decides he wants to teach because it's popular. You may be a Christian here and you've heard this verse taught or used and it might make you nervous because maybe someone taught it in an unbiblical way or maybe they applied it in an unbiblical way. Maybe you've heard someone use this verse as an excuse to accost you, to verbally beat you down, maybe even verbally abuse you. And I guess I want to address that here because if that's happened to you, and I imagine there probably are some maybe listening or here today that's might, that might have happened to you maybe in the past at some point, I want to say I'm sorry that that happened to you. As a pastor, as a follower of Christ, people can use Scripture and they can use it to hurt people, and that's not what Christ wants for us. So I hope you will listen with fresh ears this morning to what God actually says here. So verse 1, wives are instructed to adorn their marriage with the beautiful quality of Christ-like submission. Look down in verse number five. You can see this here as well. There's the example given of holy women. Verse five, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves 
by submitting to their own husbands. So these, there's these godly ladies in the scriptures who ordered their marriage in such a, such a way with submission that they adorned it. They, they brought beauty to it. The word subject there, again, is the same word we saw in verse 13. In verse 18, it's the word hupo tasso, which means to, to hupo is under, tasso is to put in order, so it's to arrange yourself under an order of authority. God's designed for marriage is to have an order of authority. That's unpopular today to say that, but that's what the scripture teaches. Like any other human institution, there's a, an order of authority. There's one that's the head, that's the, the one that has the authority, and those underneath that person. This is the case in government. This is the case in the military. This is the case of employment. This is the case if you're in a school system. This is a case in almost every human institution. I mean, I remember being in fifth grade, and, and we had the FBI, Fat Boys of Indiana. And guess what we did? One of our first things, we elected a leader, a head, someone to be in charge. So even in that one, there's a head. But this is as well the case in the home. And the word of God directs a wife to arrange herself under the order of authority of her own husband. That's an important distinction right there. Look at verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. There's a possessive adjective there. So this is not for a wife. This is not an arrangement for a wife to be in submission or women to be in submission to other men. This is not what this is teaching. This is for her own husband. It's within the covenant marriage relationship. This is, does not mean women are to be subject to men in general. The Bible does not teach that. This is about marriage. So, but even in this arrangement, even when we talk about this right here, many can kind of bristle at this, right? Kind of like, ooh, really? The Bible teaches this right here? Because our society, again, counters this very, in a very negative way. Some people look at this verse and they say, well, doesn't this verse teach the superiority of one gender over another? And the answer is, is no. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what this verse teaches. Verse 1 is about marital roles, not about the equality of individuals. Just because you have a different role doesn't mean you're inferior or you're superior. Let's take, for instance, let's take for instance, something controversial like the President of the United States. Isn't that always a fun thing to talk about, especially in our society today? So you have the president, you have the vice president, right? They have different roles. One is the head. One is the one who is the, uh, has more authority than the other and oversees the other. But they remain equal in personhood, right? There's not one that more, has more dignity or one that has more honor than the other. In other words, they're, they're, as far as in the personhood, they are, they are equal in worth, but they have different roles. Now, and actually, some might argue that our current vice president actually maybe exhibits himself with more dignity than the president. Maybe his character comes out as maybe having better character. But that does not change his role nor his authority, does it? And so my point is that of this is, is that authority um, and differing roles are in no way an indicator, indicator of worth or value. In fact, look down in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and you can see here that husbands are to view their wives as spiritual equals, that they're both heirs in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. And, and I'm not going to go through the entire teaching of the scripture here, but it's important to think about this because it's countered from so many different angles. But all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, before the fall, 
before there was cultural norms, when God established culture, if you want to say it that way, God actually designed this, these, these roles to be this way. In Genesis chapter 1, God made man and woman in his image. So being in the image of God is not just being a male. It's actually the, the man, uh, mankind is made in the image of God, and that's, there's a maleness and a femaleness to it. That's actually kind of cool. And it shows how there's this, there's this equal dignity and worth of, of men and women in the, made in the image of God. Then in Genesis chapter 2, God then gives the husband and the wife different roles within the marriage covenant. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God institutes marriage. Man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So you have these two distinct genders. And yes, that's right. I said two distinct genders. Amen? Okay. Two distinct genders. And God unites them together in harmony in marriage. And what does that look like? It looks like them fulfilling their complementing roles. And for the husband in Genesis 2, 15, God gives him the role of leading the home and providing. And so he is to serve as the servant leader to provide for his family and, and to lead in that way. And then Genesis chapter 2, 18, God creates Eve and appoints her as the complementing helper. Eve was to arrange herself under the authority of Adam to fulfill God's divine call for her to support and to help her husband as he leads the family. And listen to what John Piper says about this. He says, a submissive helper is this. It's the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to carry it out according to her gifts. So, and again, some people look at this role as debasing and dishonoring to women and to the gender of female. I've read different opinions on this, and I was trying to discern what, it, what is the core of it? What's the, like, what's the reason why people really, even Christians, reject this? And I actually came to this conclusion. I think part of it is because we're independent Americans, right? We're like, you know, we're not going to be under anyone. King of England, you know, go across the Atlantic, you know. And so then we do that in other areas of life probably as well. But I think a lot of times we have a negative view of submission. I think that's probably what it comes down to. We view that character quality as, ooh, that's not a good thing to have in your life. Who wants that in your life? But did you know that Jesus lives in submission? The whole, in the Holy Trinity, the Father is the head. The, the Son, Jesus, submits to the Father. Does, does Jesus' submission make him inferior? Not in our doctrine, okay? We believe that they are co-equal as divine persons. Yet they have different roles. Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life, who died and was crucified and resurrected as the Savior and Lord. That's a pretty awesome, spectacular role, isn't it? Yes. And listen to what he says in John 6, 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That's someone putting themselves under someone else. That's submission right there. And Jesus' submission did not make him inferior, but actually it did the exact opposite. Do you realize his submission is what was used to exalt him to the high position that he's in as Lord over everything, death and sin and all powers? In fact, without Jesus' submission, we would not have salvation. So instead of seeing submission as something that's like, oh, that's pretty low, it's degrading. Actually, it's something that is a beautiful character trait of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, even for us, we cannot have salvation unless we have submission. Unless we say we are sinful people who deserve to go to hell for our sin, but Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and then therefore we repent and believe in Him and follow Him, and we submit, if you could say it that way, submit to Him. So going back to the husband and wife relationship, following the leadership of your husband is actually a Christ-like quality. It's actually what Christ is like. As a wife, if you look at Proverbs chapter 31, as a, as a wife and a woman there in Proverbs 31, you don't see this passive, docile, beaten-down person, do you? If, go read that text sometime and look at it. And what you see is this. You see a woman there who works with her hands. She provides for her family. She considers a field. She buys it. She plants a vineyard. Actually, if we have a proper perspective of the role of the wife in the relationship, actually it elevates her to be able to use her gifts in a very creative and industrious way. And when a husband and a wife partner in marriage, in a beautiful marriage, according to the roles God has given them, a wife will actually exercise her gifts in such a way that is, that is spectacular, that it's actually beautiful and wonderful in the sight of God and is industrious and creative. So for each of us in here, as we kind of end this point here, I would just, let's just think about this. Maybe all of us should actually consider, do we have an unbiblical view of submission? You know, if I say the word submission, submit, if you're automatically coming to your mind, you're going, oh, I don't like that. Maybe what you should do is go through the scripture and study the blessing of this Christ-like character quality. And for wives, I would apply it this way, maybe consider this probably the best way to say this. How can I order my role in a way that makes our marriage beautiful? Maybe there's something out of order, and maybe something, sometimes it's something you say or something you do, or maybe, maybe there's something that can help bring that back in order. Or how can I support my husband to be the leader God has called him to be? How can I, or, um, how can I order our marriage with beauty of honoring him, reverence him, and using my gifts? I think it's important for us husbands to consider how to apply this too, right? Amen, husbands? Amen. There we go. Thank you back there. One hopefully becoming a husband soon. I think it's good for us to ask the questions, am I leading in a way that enables my wife to excel in her gifts? I mean, if you look at a verse like this and you do triumph, like, ha, 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 yeah, you probably have an unbiblical view of submission as well. Well, not probably, you do. Do my attitudes and actions cause her to find it more difficult to, to follow and support me? Do I, am I taking the spiritual leadership in the family that I should take? Do, do I view submission in such a way that seeks to enable my wife to excel and to harness her gifts for God's glory? So probably the best question to ask in this is for, marriage, for married couples is, do you have a beautiful marriage? And if not, what needs to be reordered by the, by the Lord. Maybe it'd be good for you after this to talk about that. Maybe on the way home and pray and ask God to give you wisdom and to order your marriage in a way that, beautiful, that is beautiful, that follows God. It's easy to, to play the blame game. It's like you think, well, <laughs> I would be a good leader in the home if it wasn't for her, right? Or I would follow him, but he's not someone that's worth following. But actually, verse 1 cuts down those excuses. Look at verse 1. 
Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So here's tip number two to adorn your life with imperishable beauty of Christ's likeness. Adorn your relationship. Adorn your relationship with the beauty of pure and reverent conduct. After Peter instructs wives to be subject to their husbands, he introduces this purpose clause there. Look in verse 1, he says, so that, or in order that. In other words, one of the causes of putting yourself into this beautiful uh, position of submission is that you actually can have an evangelistic, a grace-directed effect upon your husband. And the scenario in verse 1 and 2 is a wife who is a believer, and the husband is an unbeliever. So you look at verse 1, you see the husband is described as some do not obey the word. And as we've seen in 1 Peter, that's basically speaking of someone who doesn't believe the word of God or someone who's not a believer. Maybe someone who claims to be a believer and actually doesn't truly believe. They're not obeying the word of God. So if you're a believing wife, all right, you're a believing wife and you're like, okay, I want my husband to come to know Christ. That's a, definitely something you should desire. How can you convince him to become a believer? Like, how do you do that? Or I should say it this way. If you're a wife, how do you convince your husband to do anything? Well, think about Delilah and Samson. Samson had long hair, right? That was the secret to his great strength. She wanted to know what the secret was. So Judges 16, 16 says this. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. That's one option. Not a good one. Not a good example either. Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dripping of a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. I remember being in a meeting once when I was in South Carolina, and there's a guy that we attended our meetings, and he was a foot tapper. You remember one of those people in the meeting? They're like, foot's always going like this, or, or they have to, they don't even know they're doing it. And it, you can put up with it for a while, but after a while you're like, can you please stop that, right? In other words, Someone can do something enough, eventually you will respond. And sometimes that's actually how people can operate. Like, if I want something done, then I will just keep saying something, and eventually the person will give in. And, and that's actually pretty effective, but it's not necessarily God's way at all. I should say necessarily it's not God's way at all. It's not what God wants. So that's one option. So you could, you know, leave Bible verses in his shoes every morning or every Sunday when you come to church, you say, well, enjoy the being lazy and sitting on the couch while I go serve God and go to church, you know. So, in other words, you can say things, right, and you just kind of get those little tips in there, and that's probably not the most effective way to address your husband in that regard. So what's the option God gives us here? Well, verse 1, he says, to decorate your relationship with your conduct rather than your contentious words. Decorate your relationship with your conduct rather than your contentious words. He says, so even, look at verse 1, so even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. They're soul winning right here. One without a word by the conduct of their wives. Without a word doesn't mean without the word of God. It means without the words of the woman. A wife whose husband does not believe the word of God, she can preach to her husband without using her own words, by preaching with her life and her conduct. And what does her conduct look like? Look in verse number two. He says it's respectful and it's pure. Respectful is the word for fear. And as we've said a number of times, when Peter used the word fear like this, he's not speaking of fearing people. 
He's speaking of fearing God. It's, it's speaking of a woman's relationship that she has with God, the idea that she worships God and follows him. And so her conduct, she, she, she acts in such a way that it's clear that this is a woman who walks with God. And her godly conduct is a testimony to her husband, and it has an effect upon her. Now, I promised my wife that I wouldn't give any illustrations about her with this sermon. So this isn't really about her. But last night, I was trying to order something online, and, uh, and it had to be done by, like, midnight, you know, so I'm trying to get it done. And, and, and I'll confess, I got frustrated to the point where the password wouldn't go in. You ever done that? And so you just keep entering the password. And, like, you know, I don't know about you. I probably shouldn't say this on camera, but you have, like, six passwords you use. You tried all the pa- And eventually it locked me out, so much so that it said that I couldn't get it back in it till today. So then I couldn't even buy this thing, and I know the price is going to go up the next day. So I'm super frustrated. You know, we're supposed to be going to bed. I'm supposed to be preaching the next day, and I'm like, my heart's frustrated. And, you know, and so it's like, okay, well, I can't do this, so just go to bed. Here we go. got to go to bed, you know. And she just leaned over, and she patted me on the arm. And she didn't even know I was going to preach this morning, okay? Pat me on the arm. Get the, did a little, like, pat, and it's like, it's going to be okay. And the thing is, the truth is, you know, that pat, that, like, don't worry, it's, it'll work out, was was just what I needed. It was like, it was a power in it that, honestly, she probably had the right to say, you're an idiot. Why did you get frustrated? <laughs> just keep typing the password in. Like, if you wouldn't just keep typing the password in, this wouldn't happen. We could have got this. And da, da, da. But she didn't say anything. She did that. And it really, it helped me to go, yeah, you know what? Like, first of all, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but not that big of a deal. <laughs> and I should trust the Lord in this. And there, there's, a, there's a power to godly actions that are actually more powerful sometimes than words. And that's what you see in the Proverbs 31 woman, right? You see that she has her children and her husband. They, they rise up. They call her blessed. And why is that? It's because she's so beautiful, right? Physically? No. Because in the next verse, he says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she'll be praised. So there's something about a, a woman who fears God that her children and her husband see it and they say, wow, that is a woman that is beautiful. And so there's a power that women can have in regard to their beauty, isn't there? If you go to Proverbs chapter 6, you can see this. Like the woman who's the seductress, she uses her beauty to tempt and to draw a man away. And so there's... I don't know if, if people really understand this. There is a power to a woman's beauty, external beauty. But interesting about this passage here, he's saying actually there's something even more powerful, and that's a woman's internal beauty. That's a Christ-like spirit. And so he says it's reverent, and then verse number two, he says it's also pure, pure conduct. This is speaking about the purity of her relationship with her husband. So I think it's definitely talking about the faithfulness to the marriage covenant. But I think it's also speaking about purity and motive and word and action. It speaks to the fact that she doesn't manipulate him or she doesn't try to threaten or make him feel guilty to get something she wants, but she uses her words and her conduct in a way that are pure. And then the last, or the third point, third beauty tip here is to adorn yourself with the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter transitions from speaking about the role in marriage to the conduct and relationships, to now the beauty of a woman. And in verse 3, you see Peter describes the world's view of beauty. And then in verse 4, he describes God's view of imperishable inner beauty. Look at verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Again, adorning means to put into order. So the world is consumed with putting into order the external features of a woman, right? Whether it be the first century or the 21st century, it spans time and, it's, and goes through all cultures. Looks different in different places, but he articulates three categories of externals that the world flaunts and wants you to use really to, to value or to judge the value of your person. He wants, what the world wants you to do is they want you to evaluate your dignity and your worth as a woman according to externals. And here are three categories here. First of all, the world uses your body. So he says the, the braiding of your hair. The braiding of the hair was, the mo- was an elaborate weave that ladies would, would craft to draw attention. Really, it was one of the only parts of a woman back then that was visible to people that they could see. So you'd, you know, you'd braid your hair out, and, and, uh, and it would be something that would draw attention to yourself. And, and they, as well as our world today, takes the, the, the body of a woman and uses that to evaluate the worth of that woman. I think that's probably why over 30 million Americans struggle with eating disorders. There's probably some girls in here, someone maybe listening, maybe even guys listening, and, and you, you struggle with this. Or maybe you know someone that does. And, and kind of the foundation behind this, the reason a lot of people have this struggle, is that our world preaches that your self-worth is found in your body shape or size or skin tone or whatever it is which is a worldly and really satanic, and for some people, frankly, it's deadly. And so we should reject that, right? Second category is what you own, putting on gold jewelry, what you own. So putting on gold jewelry was a sign that a woman was wealthy, that she had means, with like a status symbol. And again, our society does the same thing. We assign worth to what you own. You know, so it starts all the way when you're young. You know, you're in high school and you have the popular group, right? And if you're in the more popular group, you're, you're worth more. If you're in the less popular group, you're worth less. You know, if you have certain things and you have more value, if you don't have certain things, you have less. So if you drive up in a convertible, that's pretty valuable, right? I mean, yeah, well, look at that girl right there, you know, and the other girl driving up in a Pinto. No, no, she drives up on her bike. The point is, you, you get the point. Like, we do that, right, starting at a young age, and we all the way up, we do that. Even as simple as having a cell phone, right? It's like you have the girls that have the cell phones or even have, like, the, the nice cell phones, like the, the latest cell phone, and those are the highest, higher status people, all the way to the people that are in the corner going, I don't even have a cell phone yet. You're not worth anything. That's kind of what the world teaches and preaches, right? And it happens all the way up, even through... Middle age, old age, right? It's like, you live in an apartment still? You have that size of house, right? Isn't that how it, is it works in our society? And we assign worth to that type of stuff, what we own. And then the third category is, and by the way, I said all those things, not to make fun of those people and put them down, but to say, don't value those things, or the people buy those things, okay? So if you don't have a cell phone, praise God for it. You probably have a better mind than most people, okay? Okay, and then third category is clothing, what you wear, which is probably the most relatable. This, was, again, was a status symbol. Ladies would wear elaborate clothes, dresses um, that were colorful. They would frequently change them. And, you know, the more clothes you owned, kind of the more rich you were, more wealthy you were, higher status you had in society. And we do that today, right? You know, it's like what you wear kind of identifies, like, oh, you still dress like you're from the 2000s? <laughs> 
you're less valuable than I am, right? 2000s, that like, sounds like a long time ago, but. But if you're 18 and under, it's actually when you were a child, so there you go. So what's the command here? Is it wrong to braid your hair? Is it wrong to wear jewelry? Is it wrong to put on clothes? Yeah, I think that last one pretty much sums it up for us. He's not saying that, right? I hope not. He's teaching us not to place our value, our worth, our beauty in temporal things like that. 1 Timothy 2.9 says, I want the women to dress modestly with decency, propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And the main idea of being modest actually is that you don't draw attention to yourself, attention to your body, attention to, to your status, if you can say it that way. In, our, in their society, they actually put on a lot of clothes and they brought attention to themselves in that way. I think our society is kind of like the opposite. Like we try to remove as many clothes as possible to bring attention to ourselves. And if you dress in a certain way to bring attention to your body or to display a certain fashion or a certain status that you think you have, if, if this is what you're trying to do, to draw attention to your, your wealth, your social status, to parts of your body, because you know it will turn heads, that's worldly, and that's actually what the Bible describes as immodest. That's immodest. It's drawing attention to the wrong in the wrong place. And I think it's, yeah, let me just say this. Young ladies, all the things that the world preaches that are valuable, which is, you know, what your body looks like, your hair, your clothes, your possessions, they will soon all fade and be gone. We don't need any amens from anyone in here for this, but soon you'll get wrinkles, gray hair, your styles will change. Although if you keep your clothes for about 30 years, they'll come back in style. But even more important, everything around us will soon perish. It's all going to be gone. And soon we're going to be in eternity. And so what the, what the world values now is not what's going to be valuable in 100 years from now when you're in eternity. And so that's what he's calling us to do here. He's saying, listen, look at the things that are imperishable, what, what truly is valuable, what lasts. And so adorn yourself with the beauty of what? A gentle and quiet spirit. He says that in verse 4. Let your adorning, order your life, Order the hidden person of your heart, and I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Whose opinion of your beauty matters the most? You know, is it, is it everyone at church when you come in? Is it your neighbors? And I'm like, people don't really value that very much. Well, anyways, <laughs> is it your friends? If you're younger, is it a boyfriend? Is it your girlfriend's? Is it social media? What's the most important opinion that matters? What is it? God's opinion, that's right. What's amazing about this verse is that God actually looks, he gazes upon you and your inner person. Now think about this. He sees a person with a gentle and quiet spirit as beautiful. That's God's opinion, and that's the opinion that matters. What does it mean to have a gentle and quiet spirit? Well, gentle is often translated as meek. It's actually a very powerful attribute. Jesus ascribed this attribute to himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He described himself as a, a meek, used the same word here, gentle or meek person. This is my definition. You can write it down if you want to. Meekness or gentleness is an inner strength under God's control. 
It's an inner strength under God's control. So sometimes people look at a meek person and they're like, oh, that must be a person who's a weakling or a pushover. That's not what the Bible is speaking about. A meek person is one who's fully submitted to the Holy Spirit and therefore the full power of God courses through their life, through their minds and their their mind and their words. I I, I view a a meek woman here as, as a woman who has a mind and words that are like a laser beam that is powerful, but shines with precision and power under the control of God. So meek and quiet. Next one is quiet. The Greek word quiet means still or undisturbed, disturbed, at peace. Describes a heart that is not easily ruffled by the cares and concerns of this world. I look at this kind of word and I picture the, the tomb of the unknown soldier. You know, the soldier, the the guy or girl that goes back and forth there, and it's, it can be windy, it can be rainy, it can be dark, but that soldier is in place, doing its job. Nothing moves that soldier. That soldier, you could say this way, is a quiet person. It's not that they're just shut up, although they don't speak, but it's that they're, they're in the midst of storms and difficulties in the hot sun. They're unruffled, unruffled by the cares and concerns around them. They just keep on going doing what they're called to do. The last tip here is to adorn your life with examples of godly ladies who did good and were courageous. Look in verse 5. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. When you think of a role model, what do you think of? When our, when our society thinks of a role model, what do they think of? So I Googled role models. Here we go. Ro- role models in America. And moms.com came up. And it said, 10 famous people who are good role models for your children. The first one that was up there was a lady named Cameron Diaz. This is what the article says. This vibrant star had made it her mission to teach girls and women in general that their body is their responsibility. Cameron is all about self-care and taking care of one's body. And let me just know, it's actually good to take care of your body. Right? The Bible says bodily exercise does have profit. Godliness is profitable for all things. So it's not that you can't take care of your body, but is that the role model? Like, this is what you should do, take care of your body and your life and die? And what should be, Who should be our role models? I think sometimes we can watch you know, these ladies that are on these talk shows. Well, we, I don't know. I don't watch them, but people can. You know, and you laugh. Some are funny and stuff. And we ended up looking up to those people as people who are role models. We as some kind of examples for us. Who should our role models be? Well, here he says, look at the holy women of the scripture. I think this probably also includes the holy women around us that exhibit these <clears throat> character qualities. The holy women hoped in God. They adorned themselves by submitting to their husbands. So they, they function here in their in their marital roles as ladies who obeyed the Lord by operating in a way that was that honored the Lord in their marriage. And here in verse six, look at verse six, he gives Sarah, verse five and six. No, verse six, yeah, verse six he gives Sarah as an example of obeying Abraham and calling him Lord. Now that really makes people nervous right there, doesn't it? But don't get the wrong idea. She wasn't calling him a god. She wasn't calling him the master and she was the slave. It wasn't that. 
Lord was a term of respect for a person in authority. So what Sarah did was she honored her husband by following his leadership. And part of following has to be obedience, right? I mean, that is a part of it. It's a word people don't like to use with this kind of thing, but it is a part of that. And she honored him with respect by calling him Lord or saying, this, this, you have this authoritative position in the home. And she didn't do it because she was forced to. She didn't do it because she was beaten down. She didn't do it because she was abused. In fact, look at verse 6. It says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah honored her husband in this way because she wanted to do good. In fact, if you look in the chapter 2, you see when it says do good and talks about submission, they're actually synonymous. He's saying, like, you do good, and one way you do that is you put yourself under the order of authority. And so here you have a woman who says, I want to do good in the marital relationship. And she did so without fear. Verse 6 says, do not fear anything that is frightening. This means that she and women like her should, didn't cower to Abraham and to their husbands. If you study the story of Genesis and Sarah, you actually see she was actually a pretty strong-willed woman. She actually probably told him what to do more times than he told her what to do. She was not afraid. And what, is, what does that mean she was then? If she's not afraid, what's the opposite of fear? She was courageous. She had courage. So if you do good in your marital role, and you do so with courage, she says, you are her children. Now, that's a blessing. You might not see that as a blessing, but these, this scripture, this uh, uh, letter was written to Gentiles, and they saw the Old Testament Jews, and they didn't receive the blessings of being genetically connected to the Jews, but she, he's saying here, listen, if you follow her example, it's like you're a direct descendant of Sarah. My girls are doing children's church this morning, and so last night we were talking about different things, and we are talking about songs so they could sing, and the song Father Abraham came up, and I was thinking about this text, I was like, oh, how come no one ever, ever came up with the song Mother Sarah? You know, so, do you guys know that song, Father Abraham? Had many sons. Okay, I don't really like the song very much, but it's kind of annoying. But, you know, Father, I was thinking that girls, I, so I tried to get the girls, so who, we'll see if they did it. So you have little kids in there, you can ask. Mother Sarah had many daughters. Many daughters had Mother Sarah. I am one of them, and so are you, if you follow her example. doesn't really rhyme, but hey, it's actually probably a more biblical song than Father Abraham is, so there you go. So girl, girls, you can sing that. Make all the boys be quiet. There's a lot of role models in our society, but let me just encourage you, especially young ladies, to look to those in the church, to relationships of husbands and wives in the church that are following Christ, to look to those as role models and to the Holy Scripture. I think that all of us read through something like this, and if you had a godly mother, you look and you think, this describes my mother. I definitely would say this. If you're listening, Mom, this describes you. She definitely was a role model for who I picked in marriage, and from my wife even as well. So let's just end with application. I'm going to just consider how do you apply this? Because some of you young guys are sitting there going, oh, about women being married, this doesn't apply to me. What am I even sitting here for? You should have told me I would have stayed home. But let's consider how you can apply this. Okay, I'm going to talk to the young men. I think it might be good for you to consider this morning what true beauty really is. Ask God to give you spiritual eyes that, tr that value true imperishable beauty, which means that's the qualities of a woman's heart who follows Christ. If your view of women is twisted to think of them as objects to please your eyes, then I ask you 
to repent and turn from that and probably get some help. That's the world's way of looking at women, but ask God to change your perspective to see beauty as a woman who's Christ-like. And I think that means if you're a young man, if you're a teenage man, that means when you look at other girls, you actually see their relationship with their fathers and you want to encourage them to submit to their fathers. Like, that's actually beautiful. Not a rebellious girl. And as a young man, I encourage you to relate to girls in a way that encourages them to, to have a relationship with God, to be pure in their relationship with you and other, other guys. Don't speak or, or joke in a, in a way that actually places the worth of that girl based upon the things that she wears or the shape of her body or her physical external characteristics, but actually value Christ-like qualities within that girl. And so speak in a way that does that. And sometimes guys can joke and they can say things about girls and actually you're worldly in your jokes and actually it's very hurtful to those girls, but actually probably more than anything else, it's actually very hurtful for them spiritually. And then young ladies, let me say this. I'm going to ask you if you could take this list sometime and just pray through it and ask the Lord to help you to understand what true beauty really is. Consider what God considers beautiful. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you to have a heart of submission. If you're in school to your teacher, if you if you're have a, a place of employment to your boss, if you have a parent to your parent. So young ladies that are single, let me encourage you to cultivate your relationship with God and, and commit your life to living purely until throughout your life. And I would one last admonition. Spend more time in the mirror of God's word than in the mirror in your bathroom. And value those spiritual qualities of Christ. And then fathers and husbands, let me talk to you real quick. I think we should ask God to give us grace and wisdom to know how to speak to our wives and to our young ladies in our life. To give us discerning words, again, that don't place value upon them because of something they wear or the shape of their body, but actually seek to cultivate them to be like Christ. We can sometimes unknowingly, as, as fathers and as husbands, sometimes we can unknowingly speak of our wives or, our, or the ladies in our home in such a way that actually shapes their thinking to think of their body and their life to have a certain type of value based upon what they're wearing or what the shape of their body is. And so we can, again, make a joke. Or sometimes it's just like you compliment, and all your compliments are external compliments. And so therefore, you are preaching to them. Your value is based upon your externals, your externals, your externals. And so I think it's good for us to ask God, give us wisdom to actually view true beauty as inner beauty and then to speak in a way towards those young ladies in that way. And also, God, to give us the wisdom and the courage to be the leaders who want to love and serve our ladies in our life. And then last, ladies, I would ask you just, again, those who, especially those who are married, is to ask the Lord to give you the power through the Holy Spirit to adorn your marriage, your relationship, your heart, and your life with Christ-like character. Let's end in prayer. And as we conclude with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, as we conclude in prayer, I'm just going to give you a, a time to talk to the Lord. I addressed all these different groups. I think it's probably good for us if those who are in fellowship with Christ and walking with Christ to go before the Lord and ask God to give us this mind, to give us the mind of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we believe your word is true and you actually know better than we do about how to think and view this world and to view ourselves. I think that I could say collectively for all of us in here, we're sorry. For those in here who are walking with Christ, we're sorry when we view women and ladies just by their externals and place value upon them based upon what they wear or own or their status in society. And we don't seek to, to speak to the heart of individuals and encourage this, this beautiful heart that truly is what will last for eternity. So I pray for our church. Give us minds that think like Christ. Give us marriages that are beautiful. Give us lives that serve you. Such a practical text here this morning for us. And may we not miss that this is not something we're just supposed to do. It's something we're supposed to surrender to the Holy Spirit and do by the power of his grace. So give us that grace, Lord, today, throughout this week, to think and to live like this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.